health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Before I go, I want to say a final thank you to the sponsors of today's podcast, Vitality. For me, the secret to a happy and healthy life is about living consciously. And when we can align those little things we do and decisions we make every day with the life we really want to live, it really makes a difference, which is when the team over at Vitality comes in. Their comprehensive cover enables us all to live a happier, healthier life, whether it's through offering discounts on gym memberships at Virgin Active, Nuffield Health or Pure Gym, or on activity trackers from Garmin, Polar and Samsung. For me, I've been an ambassador with Vitality for several years now, and undoubtedly the feeling of true support when someone cares about you and your health and your quality of life it makes a massive difference. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply. Hi there, welcome back. And thanks so much for joining me on this episode of I Am with Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee believes that medicine is more art than science, and I'm all over that. His MO is about understanding the person, the individual in the most complete way possible looking at how lifestyle factors like upbringing, social status, stress levels, sleep, even things like phone use might be affecting physical and mental health. This is kind of a stand he's taken after many years of seeing different patients and all that experience has led to a realization that we may be suffering needlessly and that all of us can feel much better than we currently do. I feel he's redefining health and what good health means, turning it into more of a an open-ended journey of potential excitement and surprise and empowering us to become the architects of our own health. Not a bad thing. I have a shorter episode released on Tuesday this week that digs a little further into some of these core themes of the episode. So give that one a listen if you're interested and if you want to take things a little bit deeper. These Thursday episodes are always going to be for the guests. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. This is I Am with Dr. Rongan Chatterjee. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, thank you very much for joining me on uh, my podcast. It's a real exciting opportunity for me and, and a real pleasure and a privilege. So uh, thank you for being here. Johnny, thanks for inviting me. Really, really looking forward to chatting with you. Well, the, the podcast is called I Am and the idea behind it, the concept of it is to explore what human potential really is and the the immensity of what lies in the eye that we have and to see where we all are in terms of that journey, to see what's working, what's not, and to get people's experience of it and and how they see it themselves. And that's uh, why it's such an exciting opportunity for me. And I wondered if 
you might be able just to kick off a little bit about you and your journey and, and what you see as your mission. I know you've stated before that you're very keen to have an impact or, or touch you know, a million people's lives in terms of their health and well-being. And how come you come into the space you are now? How's, how's your journey come about? Yeah, so as we're speaking, Johnny, I have been a practicing doctor for almost 21 years now. So during that time, I've seen tens of thousands of patients. And, you know, my career has taken quite a few different paths. You know, various life experiences have happened, which have changed the trajectory of my career and how I see my role as a doctor. But, you know, to try and summarise very simply, I went to Edinburgh Medical School. I qualified thinking that I had learnt everything that I need to go out there and help people. And I started off in hospitals and yeah, you know what? We're pretty good at acute medicine. We learned some really good tools that help us. Sure. So I was seeing that. But I always had a slight discontentment that we weren't doing as much as I thought we could do. And certainly I don't feel I learnt the sorts of things that I thought I was going to learn when I went to medical school. I found that a lot of the time we were suppressing people's symptoms, putting plasters on their issues. And, you know, I moved from being a specialist, Johnny, to to being a GP because I was getting very frustrated that I was just seeing one part of the body. I thought, no, the whole body's connected. I don't want to spend my entire career just seeing one intricate part. And so I moved to general practice, much to my dad's confusion, I might add, you know, for, for dads, an immigrant from India to the UK, you know, me going and doing all my specialist exams, getting them, and then moving to general practice was really, really quite confusing for me. Couldn't quite understand why would I do that. But I wanted to see everything. I wanted to see how different symptoms from different parts of the body all connected. I wanted to build up relationships with people. But on that journey, I remember one day, Johnny, I was at the end of the day, I looked back at my clinic list and I asked myself, Wrong, and how many people have you really helped? And I honestly thought it was. 20%. I thought 20% of people I've really helped. The other 80%, I've done something. I've referred them on for something. I've given them a drug to help suppress a symptom. But I didn't feel that I'd really helped them. I didn't feel I understood what was causing their problems. I don't think I'd helped them understand that. And I knew they'd be back. I knew they would be back within a week or two. And I thought, I don't want to do this for the next 40 years. Like, I don't want to just be handing out pills like this, suppressing people's symptoms. And so I went on this journey to learn more, to explore what really causes ill health. What is the root cause of the problems that I'm seeing day to day? And, you know, I went around the world to learn. I went, I learned from loads of experts. I applied those principles with my patients. I was using less medication than ever before and getting better results than ever before. And this is really interesting. I then got the opportunity to showcase a lot of this on BBC One. There was a series called Doctor in the House in 2015 and 2017 when I, I went and lived alongside families who had been sick, many of them for years. They'd already seen doctors, they'd already seen specialists. And I was able to show within four to six weeks, that all manner of different problems, whether it be type 2 diabetes, whether it be irritable bowel syndrome, panic attacks, anxiety, fibromyalgia, whatever they were, I showed either you could fully reverse or make a significant improvement by making small changes 
to different areas of their lifestyle. They didn't use a single drug. It was all done through lifestyle. And, you know, really that's led to where I'm at today, which is I got to show on a big scale what's possible. That's led to my books and my podcasts. And all I aim to do, Johnny, is share with people information that enables them to be the architects of their own health and happiness. I want to put the patient, the listener, the reader in control so they feel, hey, you know what? I've got agency over my life. There's little things that I can do. And so the mission has been publicly stated by me a few years ago that I want to help 100 million people over the course of my career. And as a as a guy who grew up in Britain, I found that so hard to say. I thought, what will people think of me? Will they think I've got a big ego? Right? I was really, really scared. Can I measure that? Well, it's very hard to measure it. And in some ways, it doesn't matter whether I do or not. It's an aspiration. It helps me make decisions in my life. When the opportunities come in, it's like, okay, Rongan, is this going to help you hit that 100 million figure or not? So, I found it helpful, although I must say, Johnny, I I can tell when I've heard you speak recently that you're on quite a journey of evolution, or certainly appears that way to me. I feel I'm very much on that journey as well, and I'm just not sure that 100 million figure sits that well with me anymore. Like, I think it served a role for a few years, but in some ways now I think it might be an artificial goal that in some ways might be limiting. I mean, why... Why stop at 100 million, I guess? You know, why not think about every human has potential? Every human should have the ability to be the architects of their own health and happiness. So, yeah, I've tried to summarise 21 years of my life and my professional (laughs) history into a few minutes, but hopefully that gives you a little flavour. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I I actually started off by stating that your goal was 1 million and uh, I've undercooked it by 99. And I think uh, maybe that's because even 1 million sounds like an amazing feat to me. But interesting, you should say that about what served an enormous purpose in that moment, maybe no longer being as relevant and therefore needing updating to see what's relevant to the you of now. And does that correlate to an updating that's needed with medicine and the way that we treat people at the moment. And it, and does that also correlate with a, the need for an, a new updated definition of what health and well-being is in order to bring about that consciousness that you mentioned that sort of, I guess, at the basis for me, you mentioned about people being the own agents of their their change, about being conscious of what's happening in your own life so that you're aware of it so you can do something about it. What is that updated definition what is your way of looking at health and well-being and and is this something you think is taking place in the world is it progressing in that direction and and if not you know why not so i'm an optimist and i think it is progressing and i think it's not progressing as quickly as we might ideally want but it's progressing at the pace that it's progressing right i've learned my own lessons in life that when you try and force things or when you try and wish things are other than they currently are, that creates friction, it creates tension. And frankly, it's unhelpful. So, you know, big picture, do we need to update our definition of health and well-being? Absolutely. I mean, for many years, we've thought health is the absence of disease. What a limiting definition. If you're not sick, you're well. Well, you know, look around, look at society, look how much we are struggling with anxiety, with depression, with mental health problems, with autoimmune problems, just general fatigue and 
indifference to our day-to-day lives. You know, society is not well, right? That's not health. And it's not maybe disease either. It's somewhere in between. And I think that's something that medicine gets wrong in a big way, is that we make it very black and white. You're either ill or you're well. And I'll give, you, give people a very tangible example. So a lot of people have heard of something called type 2 diabetes, right? It's very, very common when your blood sugar is elevated beyond a certain level. So to make it really simple for people, there's a few different kinds of tests we can do, but if it hits above 6.5 we say that's type 2 diabetes. Now, 6 to 6.5 is thought to be what's called pre-diabetes. Anything under that is considered normal, right? So you could have 4.7, that's normal. You could have 5.9, and you could be on the cusp of getting pre-diabetes, but that will also be reported as normal. And we need to recognise that health is on a continuum, The moment you get type 2 diabetes, it didn't start then, right? It started maybe five to 10 years ago. That's just the culmination where actually now we can diagnose you, but it was going on for 10 years. Alzheimer's, right? Alzheimer's is something many people are scared of, and clearly it causes a lot of of problems with the individual and for their families, a lot of heartache. You know, the best Alzheimer's researchers are saying now that Alzheimer's starts... 30 years before the diagnosis in the brain, 30 years. So these are people who potentially have got some symptoms or just a general fatigue, just a general that you're, you know, quite sharp as you were, you know, whatever that might be before it ends up with that diagnosis. So yeah, we absolutely need to change things. I think the way we're trained also doesn't really help. We're we're very good at acute medicine, right? This is not about saying medicine is either good or bad. There is absolutely a role for modern medicine, no doubt. We're very, very good at things. Have a heart attack, we can save your life. Get stuck in a car accident, we can help save you. On the rugby field, damage your knee, come in, have an operation, fix it, right? Brilliant. Where we're not so good is with this chronic malaise that's affecting so many of us. And that's because we don't realise the impact that our lifestyle has on our health. We think lifestyle... But what does lifestyle mean? Even that term, I challenge myself, you know, what does that term mean? You know, when I filmed Doctor in the House, Johnny, and I I stayed with these families alongside them for four to six weeks, one of my big learnings was our health is made up by every single interaction in our life. It's not just lifestyle. Like I could see in these families' houses that, oh, their relationships, the way they talk to each other, the stresses that build up, the way they think about themselves, all these things play a role in their symptoms. And actually in a 10-minute consultation, I'm not even getting even 1% of the information that you would ideally want, right? Even if you go down the lifestyle route, which I do with all of my patients, you know, we're all human. So if I ask someone, tell me about your lifestyle, tell me about your diet, do you know what they generally will do? As I would probably do if I went to see someone, they give you their best day right? When they're on it and they're actually eating the food that they want to, right? They don't really tell you about their weaknesses or their bad days. So I've really learned a lot when I filmed that series. I thought, wow, it's everything. It's not just food, movement, sleep and relaxation, which is what I call the four pillars of health. It's also our emotional health. It's our relationships. It's how we talk to ourselves in our heads. These things all play a role in our health. And 
the other thought I've had recently, Johnny, which is kind of why I spent the last year writing a new book on happiness, is the, this idea that health and happiness are absolutely linked. They are absolutely linked. I've said for many years that 80% of what we see as doctors is in some way related to our collective modern lifestyles. I'm not putting blame on people. I understand that life is tough. I understand that you know people are living stressful lives. But nonetheless, our collective lifestyles, whether it be poor food choices, not enough movement, too much pressure at work, burnout, stress, staying up too late, not sleeping, whatever it is, it's resulting in migraines, anxiety, depression, chronic stomach aches, the sort of things that we can't fix that with a pill. We can help your migraine temporarily with a pill, but we're not helping you get to the root cause of it with that pill. And I've always spoken about lifestyle. I've written about it extensively. And then I said to myself, is there something that's even further upstream, that's even more important than our lifestyle? And I think there is. It's our happiness and our mental well-being. How do we feel about ourselves? How do we feel about the world? How do we interact with the world? Because I tell you, Johnny, when we get that stuff right, health becomes a piece of cake, right? When you feel good about yourself, you no longer want to drown your sorrows in half a bottle of wine every night, right? When you feel good in who you are and you actively manage your stress well, you no longer need to dive headfirst into a tub of Haagen-Dazs ice cream in the evening in front of the sofa, right? The approach from public health and doctors has been stop doing that behavior. But I've never done that with patients because it doesn't work for most people. All behaviors serve a role in our life. Unless we understand the role that they're serving, how are we ever going to change it in the long term? This is why I think a lot of public health messaging doesn't work very well. It's very dry. You know, you should be drinking this number of units a week or no more than that. Okay, fine. But we don't really make those long-term decisions with our rational brain. We go on feelings and emotions. And if you are using alcohol to deal with the stresses in your life, well, unless I help you manage your stress, you're never going to change the habit. We see this at New Year every year. People can stop drinking for two weeks, right? But then life creeps back in. And the stresses are still there. And you're like, oh, you know what? I just need to just have a cheeky beer after work to just unwind. I'm not criticizing anyone, right? People can make whatever choice they want. All I'm trying to say is that, yes, in answer to your question, yes, we need a new definition of health. We need to ask ourselves, what does health mean to us individually? I'm not actually sure we need a societal definition. I think it's the sort of thing we should be asking ourselves. What does health mean to me? Like, I, I don't know, Johnny, I know this is your podcast, but what if I ask you, what, do, what does health mean to you? I mean, how would you answer that? You've triggered me on about 20 different things in that answer because it, it's, it's a brilliant picture and a, and a really connected view. Your idea of a continuum moving between, I guess disease and health for me is is a really nice way of looking at it. instead of the black and white where someone places a limit and says there you go once you cross that limit you're unhealthy or you're you've got a disease or whatever and i think the interesting thing for me is that health and well-being as i've i think i've seen you state in in some of your your previous content that built around i would look at it as as being breathing movement food and restfulness and i think in there whether it be sleep or whatever that for me those four are really really important and it's through those opportunities that some of the greatest in fact all of the greatest human transformations of experience and transcendences have taken place 
whether it be through breathing alone, is enough to completely revolutionise and upturn your entire experience of life, whether it be through what you eat and how you connect to your body and every cell in its true capacity to, to open up into bliss and, and immensity, or whether it be through movement and the yogic postures of a self-alignment that allow you to connect and start receiving information and just experience things on a completely different level, or whether it be through restfulness, meditation, the power of sleep and all those things. And yet for us, health and well-being has become a line, as you mentioned, back towards comparing up to your best day. But when you update your best day, you realize that now there's no such thing as a best day for who you are now. There's no limit to who you are now. And I think everything comes in comparison to where I've been. So we think the best of us, we can tell people my best. But once we know our best, we know our limits. And a lot of the what we're exploring in this podcast is so much aligned to this in that our idea of who we are, as you're mentioning, if it comes from an old idea, an old understanding, whether it be through an understanding that's come from trauma or an understanding that's come through other types of conditioning or something, that that old understanding, if left unchecked, as you mentioned, conscious or unconscious, will compel reinforcing behavior yeah. through reactivity. And it's through reacting, as you mentioned in those families, for me, in terms of stress and, and that you continue to reinforce the issue and by telling someone to stop reinforcing, it's a bit like telling someone, don't think about a pink monkey. You just think about a pink monkey. So stop doing this. You just keep doing it. Your mind works, your mind, you think, I don't want to do that. So it becomes a massive part of your consciousness. I think the opportunity is, is opening the relationship to the unknown and converting the relationship with challenge. And those two things are what bring about a shift in the continuum the other way, which has no end point. The disease continuum has an end point. But the health and well-being for me is the pathway to the, which is why I love this opportunity to talk on this podcast with you, is the power of I am is health and well-being. Yeah. And through reconnecting to your true self means going into the unknown. And it means understanding that challenges is good. And the more we reconnect to the unknown and to our worthiness and the, as you said, health becomes no issue. Health and well-being just exponentially spirals out of beautiful control into things you just can't imagine according to old beliefs. And what's stopping those things from coming about is holding on to old beliefs. So, so much of all this is, for me, is the idea that we're all this information that we're trying to take on board and add and learn and accumulate, so much of it's about letting go. Yeah into that space of health and well-being. And I think it's why I'm sort of so interested in what you mentioned about stress. For me, I, I see stress and health and well-being as being the two directions on that continuum, stress leading to disease and health and well-being, otherwise known for me as healing. Healing leads you into the unknown because there's no limit to what you can heal to, but there is a limit of what you can stress to. And I think somehow creating a, a consciousness and an understanding of people with a desire to shift towards healing, which means having no fixed idea of where it's taking you yeah. is kind of the secret to what allows that path to unfold according to your innermost desires to feel free, to feel loved and, and to feel loving and all those kind of parts. So, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on, on any of any of that. It's just so wonderful to hear that, Johnny. And the thing that kept coming up there for me was 
old beliefs and this idea of labels and identities. So one of the things I think we don't realize we do in medicine is when we label patients with a disease or a problem, we put them in a box and then they themselves put themselves in that box. So let's say telling someone they have depression, you have depression, can often become, I am depressed. Now that's a lot more problematic than it might initially seem. Saying I am depressed is different from saying I currently have some symptoms that are consistent with depression. It's a small difference, but it's a very, very important one because your identity as a patient can very quickly become wrapped up in your identity of your illness. And I've seen this over and over again. So I am very careful with the language I use with patients now. I wasn't early on in my career. I wasn't aware enough to. But now I try and be very, very careful. And I tell you, in the first series of Doctor in the House, I remember this patient who I saw, just this wonderful lady who had been given, I think, 10 different diagnoses by the medical profession. I think at one point she said to me, I've just been collecting them over the last few years. Fibromyalgia, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, the list went on. And I remember we went in to see her and I was thinking, okay, this is really confusing. Either she has 10 separate conditions for which she's on 20 medications, right? 20 pills wow. a day. And even more striking for me was that she wasn't even feeling better. So 20 pills weren't doing anything. She was still struggling. So you, if you take a step back, you go, okay, 10 diagnoses, 20 pills, she still feels rubbish. Something is clearly not working here. Something. Right? I'm not allocating blame at anyone. I'm sure every healthcare professional was trying to do their best for her and give her the best that they could. So I thought, how am I going to tackle this? I said, okay, what I, what I want to do, let's remove all the labels. Right? Let's forget about them. Forget about all the diseases. And let's just focus on you as an individual. How can we now create health and well-being in you? And we went through this process of looking at all aspects of her life, stress, food, mindfulness, movement, sleep. And you know what? After six weeks, Johnny, after I think 10 years of being in pain, she was completely pain-free in six weeks. Now, that's when the show finished. Two years later, she sent me a message from the top of a hill with her family and she just wanted to say thank you, said, I've not been able to do this. I've wanted to do this for years. I'm now taking zero medication, right? Zero medication. Wow. That's quite an extreme example, but I reckon people will be listening to this and I'm sure some people can identify with that. So that who would you be without that label? What's possible for you if you're not in that particular club? What belief are you holding on to now that might be limiting your progress? Now, I'm not saying we should never diagnose people, right? I don't want people to misunderstand me. But I think we have to be careful, really, really careful, because these things can become limiting. And do you know what's really interesting, actually, now I think about it, Johnny? I was so proud when that episode went out, so I thought it would give real hope to people. And it did to many, but there was a subsection of people who got really, really triggered, and I got a load of abuse on Twitter. And what's really interesting, I wasn't as able to deal with that as I am now. So I, I got really upset. I thought, I don't really understand. I'm 
all I've done is help people. Why is that upsetting people? And then I noticed the people who were often triggering me, saying, this is nonsense, this doesn't work, this doesn't happen, often they would have the name of the illness in their Twitter handle. Okay. Right? So this was around something called fibromyalgia. People were like Fibro Tom, Fibro Bob, Fibro Sally. And I got it. I, and I have a great deal of compassion for anyone who was criticizing me because I thought, actually, if this is so much a part of your life and you are really in pain and you've got fatigue and you're struggling, I absolutely feel for you. I don't know what that feels like. But if it's got to the point where that's now your identity, your public identity, your Twitter handle is this, it's just too much. You can't put on BBC One at 9pm and see someone being ill for 10 years and then get better by this guy helping you with some lifestyle. It's too much. It's too conflicting with the, this wall that you've built for yourself. So I understand. What do you do? You hit out. You know, they take out that frustration on me. Now that I get that, I have a deep level of compassion. I go, okay, I understand it. I get it. It's just too much. You're not ready for that message at this time. That's okay. And so this idea of labels and identities is something that I've really taken on in my own life, Johnny, as well. It's something I do write about in the, in the new book on happiness is this idea that I've been going through this process of ridding myself of labels. And when you said to me at the start of the show that this is called I Am... It initially, straight away, I went to these labels and I think, I am. I just don't know who I am. Like, I don't identify anymore in the way that I used to. For example, society would say, I am a doctor and I'm a father. And I might have said those things a few years ago. And it's not that I'm not, but they're not who I am. They're roles that I play. Right? And there's a subtle but important difference. Right? If who I am as a doctor, and I and I strongly identify to that, then what happens if I get sick and I can't work? What happens if I get fired from my job? What happens if I retire? This happens all the time to people who retire. Their sense of identity is wrapped up in their job. So when the job is no longer there, they feel worthless. And then they turn to what I call junk happiness as opposed to, I think, the happiness we're all craving, which is what I call core happiness. So I no longer identify strongly with being a doctor. A doctor is a role that I play. It's not who I am. Same as a father. Now, to be clear, my role as a father is probably the most important role to me. You know, helping to bring my children up so that they can be kind and compassionate to everyone they meet and have ethics and morals or whatever my wife and I try and do with our kids. That's important to me. But being a, a good father is something that I'm not as tightly wound up with as I used to be. Being a father is is a role that I play. It's not who I am. Because again, if I really attach to that, what happens when my kids are teenagers and they get annoyed and they say, you're a crap dad? Or what happens if they leave home at the age of 18? I have seen this, Johnny, happen to patients of mine. They feel worthless. They feel really bad. They go into a spiral of negative behaviours because their whole identity was wrapped up in being a good parent. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try and be a good parent, but I think the way of progressing this to people is there's this exercise that I write about called the identity menu, and I think it comes down to values, right? What are your values as a human being? There's a list in the book of 15 values, but it's it's not an exhaustive list. It's like there's a huge list out there. To try and make it practical for people, I say choose three to start with. So the three that I sit with comfortably these days are 
integrity, curiosity, and compassion. So I can bring those values into every aspect of my life. When I'm a doctor, am I acting with integrity, curiosity, and compassion? When I'm a father, can I interact with curiosity, integrity, and compassion? When I'm interviewing someone on my podcast, can I bring with me the value of integrity, curiosity, and compassion? And I I think it's a much more helpful way for people to look at their life and start to detach from some of these self-limiting labels and identities. So yeah, it's something that five years ago, I probably would have, if someone had said that to me, I would have gone, what, what are you talking about? You know, of course I'm a doctor, I'm a father, that's who I am. But it really isn't. And as I really got to embody that and absorb that, I've got this sense of freedom and lightness and awareness that I didn't have before. So for me, this is an evolving process, but I hope there's something in that that anyone listening can take a little bit and and try and apply it in their own lives. That process you're talking about a little bit with the identification is something we obviously see in professional sports as well, through injury, through non-selection, through retirement, especially all those kind of things where that identification has taken place. It's so interesting how subtly it takes place. There is no moment you sit down with a paper in front of you and write down, from now on, I am a dad or I am a good person, which seems to be one of those, actually the biggest identification that comes before job and profession and everything is actually, I'm a good person, which is one of those that people think, well, what's wrong with that? But actually, straight away, in order to know you're good, you need to have others that are bad. And you reference yourself against other people, you're, you're bad, so I know what good is. But it's kind of understanding, like you said, with that compassion that we're all on this journey from the most incredible unique angles and starting points and everyone has their immense challenges to to work with and I think the dependency upon an identity or a medicine or a certain environmental setup around you or whatever is almost that shift against becoming a no one on the inside and nothing on the inside to become everything on the outside versus trying to become a real someone and exploring or experiencing really sort of quite serious issues on the outside where you feel more and more isolated. I sort of said this before that you have that kind of moment when you're 17, 18 and you, for me, join a a professional sports team and everything just looks like opportunity. And five years down the road, suddenly you listen to yourself and all you're talking about is pressure and expectation and fear of failure as if you've now been allowed into the inner circle of true reality where everything's a nightmare and your 17-year-old just didn't know. The same way that the child is able to be creative and fun and because they don't know yet. Yeah. But it's what do they not know? What do we know? And I think that just to, you know, as a final point, this we're really excited by the idea of saying, if you imagine your absolute best self living beautifully in this moment, when you ask, what have they got that I don't? The answer is nothing. When you ask, what do I have that they don't, is more the question. What is it that they don't have that I'm still holding on to? Because actually you can imagine yourself in this moment living so differently and you don't have to have anything else. You can be in exactly the same situation, but letting go of that, whatever that dependency is, is is so powerful and so difficult. But one thing that's really interesting to me about the, the medical profession, it seems impossible to go on this to almost have this kind of 
perspective unless it belongs to you, unless you're on the journey first, almost. And I, I wonder, sometimes we it can be under the idea that in some of these places, someone knows something different. Someone knows how to live absolutely beautifully, but is actually saying for everyone else, you do this. But actually, I don't think that's the case. And looking at this amazing inner intelligence and its uh, power to, to flourish, how do you feel about the idea of the one pill fixes everything in medicine, relying on those external quick fixes, getting us back to an idea of how we should be instead of paying attention to the wisdom of our immune system and the intelligence of the interconnected whole? I think that there is still very much a pill for every ill model that is practiced. Now, I think it's important that I explain the reasons, certainly as I see them. Reason number one is the way healthcare systems are set up, yes, in the UK, but also in many countries around the world, was for a different era, right? 40, 50 years ago, Johnny, if you were going to see your doctor in the UK, it was probably because you had an acute problem, right? So you might have had a bad chest infection or a pneumonia, you know, you're coughing, you've got a fever, you're bringing up speech and you go and see the doctor. Doctor examines you, diagnoses you, figures out what bug it is, then gives you a pill. Okay, great. You take that for seven days. Hey, presto, your problem's gone. Okay, brilliant. Acute medicine at its best in, in some ways. Yeah. The problem is over the last 30, maybe 40 years now, the health landscape of the entire country, the entire world has changed. You know, it's not acute problems that are the main thing that's swamping all these systems. It's chronic problems. It's lifestyle-driven problems and symptoms. That's what's driving the majority of what I see as a doctor and the majority of what we see across the profession. Yet the training model we have is still for that old system. The structural model, how you go and see your doctor, GPS would love to do more, but in 10 minutes, it's very, very hard. So I think the system doesn't help, but it goes beyond that. The way we're trained doesn't help either. The way we're trained, Johnny, is that the body is reduced down to these separate parts. This is the heart, this is the lung, this is the kidney, this is head and neck. And often the way we practice, even with specialism, is that we think the body is separate. And, you know, most doctors will tell you these crazy stories where you've got a patient, let's say as a GP, who's really struggling with a complaint, let's say in their chest. And you often see them on a Monday, they've gone into the A&E or the ER at the weekends and they've ruled out a heart problem. So they go back to the GP to say, it's not the heart. Okay. Okay, so we know it's not the heart. So sometimes we then do some tests or send them to a respiratory doctor. And they come back, oh, you know, a few weeks later, yeah, it's not the lungs. Okay, then you send them to a gastroenterologist for the tummy and the gut. They go, yeah, we did all the tests. It's not the gut. So, okay, a couple of months ago, this patient was complaining of a symptom. So far, all that we've done is told him what it's not, right? And I think the way medicine is set up, we're not trained to see this as systems. This is something I've been trying my best to change. You know, I do have this course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine that's the only one of its kind that's accredited by the Royal College of GPs. And we, we train doctors, other healthcare professionals. We probably trained over 2,000 so far. And people love it because we're teaching them 
things that they're not taught and that they know they need. Right? We've got specialists on the course, cardiologists, psychiatrists, as well as general practitioners, because it's across the board. If you're honest as a doctor, you know that a lot of the time what we do doesn't really help. That's the truth. We may want to kid ourselves because it likes, it makes us feel better that we can do our job and get home. And of course, there are some, some areas of medicine where what we do really, really does help. But a lot of them, we're just palliating symptoms. So I think the training needs to change. It's something I'm definitely, you know, instead of just talking about it, I'm actually trying to do something actionable with this course to actually help that. But I think it also comes down to we need to also re-educate society because society is also being conditioned into thinking that if there's a problem, let me go and see what the doctor says. What do I need to take for this? I mean, look, let's take something so simple. Heartburn. Heartburn, really common complaints, indigestion. Many people immediately go to a pill for that, like a, a, a liquid that they can take or a pill that they've been prescribed. Now, there's nothing inherently right or wrong about that, but let's really figure out what that's doing. You've been sent a signal by your body, and often, instead of paying attention to this signal, and it's often because life is so busy and we just want to get rid of this discomfort so we can get on with our lives, we don't use it as a message to figure out what's going on. It's like, okay, how quickly can I get rid of this? And a lot of these medications, actually, like the, the tablets we prescribe, most of the trials were done for just a few weeks. Some people are on long-term repeat prescriptions of these things for years that affect how much stomach acid you produce, they affect how many vitamins you can absorb, but they're given out like sweets. And it's just something that might seem really simple and trivial, but it's it speaks to a wider problem in society. You spoke about stress before. Stress is everything for me. The more I think about health, I think stress, and what do we mean by stress? Yes, work stress, but physical stress, emotional stress, childhood stress. This is everything because fundamentally, at our core, our nervous system wants us to feel safe. That is the primal, primal uh, needs. Even before the last two years, the World Health Organization was saying that the health epidemic of the 21st century is stress. And we use it as a throwaway term, stress. Oh, you know, I'm a bit stressed. Okay, let's just think about it for a minute. What is stress? Whatever the source of stress, whether it's physical, emotional, childhood, whatever it is, there's a predictable response in the body, right? The stress response signals to your body that you're in danger. So a million years ago, we're on the savannah with our hunter-gatherer tribe. You know, we're a lot of tribe. We're getting on with our day. Someone sees a predator approaching, like let's say a lion or a tiger. Okay, instantaneously, your stress response kicks into gear. So what happens? Your heart rate goes up. Your blood sugar goes up so you can get more glucose to the brain. Your blood becomes more prone to clotting. So if you were to get scratched and attacked, you're not going to bleed to death. The blood's going to clot. Your amygdala, the emotional part of your brain, goes onto high alert. So you are hypervigilant for all the threats around you. Okay, brilliant. These things are super helpful to get you away from danger in the short term. So your, your physiology is literally changing. The problem now is in modern 21st century living is that we're no longer being stressed out by predators. We're being stressed out by the state of our day-to-day -day lives, by the pressure, the thoughts, right? Even thoughts we have about ourselves, our self-talk. This creates stress. When you say, I'm a loser, I shouldn't have done that. 
what a loser. What sort of idiot does that? That sounds trivial. Sounds like, what's the harm in that? Oh, actually, there's a big harm in doing that. That activates your stress response. The level of the stress hormone cortisol goes up when you do that, right? So all of these things, they're helpful in the short term. They're toxic if it's happening day in, day out to the state of your life. You don't want your heart rate going up. You know, you don't want your blood glucose going up. If your blood sugar goes up day in, day out because of the state of your life, you're going to put on weight. You're going to get type 2 diabetes, right? If your amygdala is on high alert, great if there's a real danger. But if your amygdala is on high alert to the state of your email inbox every day, you're going to get anxiety. You're going to be hypervigilant. That's a natural response. Your body's trying to protect you. And then you think about gut problems we mentioned. And another thing that I'm really passionate about talking about, because I see it with my patients, is low libido. So many people around the country are struggling with low libido in younger and younger age groups. I have so many young men and women in their 20s who really struggle with sex drive. Now, let's think about the stress response. If your body thinks it has to run away from a tiger, it activates all of these things that we've just mentioned. But what does it switch off? It switches off your gut function, right? So you don't need to be able to chill and digest food properly. And it switches off your libido. If you're running away from a target, you don't need to be able to chill out and procreate with your partner, right? So stress affects every single organ system in the body. Chronic stress uh, suppresses the immune system, right? Which is what you asked me about. Acute stress, so short doses of stress, actually help your immune system. Chronic doses of stress suppress the immune system. So when you get that, you think, wow, look at society, look at the stress, that is the impact many of us are having on our physiology day to day. We don't realize it. And what I'm passionate about is helping people understand, actually, there really are small things that you can do that make a big, big difference. And the stress thing is, is gigantic for me also. And coming from a sporting background, one of the things that was so powerful was, was almost like that you stress, that positive, proactive stress that seems to have that significance that indication of real meaning and purpose in your life you know that that anticipation before the big game because it's full of passion and excitement but you're not quite sure how it's going to turn out but it's somewhere where always when it ticks over or it tips over the limit and becomes a negative stress players want to run out the back door of the changing room because so they don't have to play but actually if you say to them let's take away that you stress so you know how the game's going to pan out and how the result's going to going to go they'll only play one game before they say, please give me it back. Because okay. it's the real heart of it. And as much as they complain about it, it's really that ability to understand it and tap into it is whether it becomes that positive, helpful you stress, which is not often, but it's also part of that desire and what have you, versus that, as you said, that chronic one. You mentioned the rest and digest, feed and breed kind of thing, but it's yeah. amazing that in that state of survival being creative, being spontaneous, being loving, being curious, all the things you mentioned that are just what make you think life's amazing, they're irrelevant to someone surviving. Yeah. They are not relevant. And I think that for me in terms of a shift is is so, so big. But I wonder if the way that everything's moving around us, seeing this as being maybe a predominant state of people at the moment especially with what's happening in the environment around us at the moment with so many different issues and so many seeming to arise fear based and anger based and frustration based and 
and all these kind of judgmental things going on that maybe we're putting in place measures to supply that demand you see there's more and more tv channels that are making more and more films there's more and more comfort foods and opportunities almost saying here if you're stressed this will give you a a relief of that stress temporary relief of that stress or you can dive into this which like you said maybe I don't know what the energy of life is like for everyone but that spontaneity that creativity is what is bringing about the resolution to all the issues we have and yet we're being pushed in the direction of comfort and almost coping and managing instead of challenging with that curiosity and almost removing energy from the curiosity and and adding it to the comfort so that we can just get through our lives which as you mentioned at the end of a rugby career you look back and the bits where you you know you were just getting through you look back and go what was I doing and I imagine in retirement it's the same thing you look back and say yeah I know what I'm going to say at the end of my life I'm going to look back and say I wish I'd made more of every moment yeah I know I'm going to say that and yet I'm here now and I can do it but the draw of comfort to say I can't wait till this evening till we can sit down and put that new TV series on or whatever it is versus that energy to go out and explore and be young again and, and dig and swing on trees or whatever it was that, yeah. you know, that makes you, you feel young. Yeah. It's, it's never been easier to distract ourselves from ourselves. That's the problem. That's one of the big problems is that any discomfort can be medicated away either with literal medication or with sugar or with pornography or with box sets whatever it might be we don't have to sit with it we can distract and you know in terms of something that might be useful for people in terms of what they might be able to do with this i think one of the most important things i do for my own health and happiness is a daily practice of solitude So I typically do this first thing in the morning. But why solitude is so important? Solitude allows your innermost thoughts and emotions to come up. If the first thing you do when you wake up is jump onto Instagram and your email, and that continues all day, and when you're in the the line for the coffee shop, you still can't sit and you have to just quickly fire off a quick email, have a quick check on Instagram... I understand. I understand the temptation. But I promise you, even five minutes of solitude a day where you have nothing coming in from the outside will allow you to start feeling what are you feeling inside. Right? I, I, think it's, I think it's such an important practice. And if you are unable to do it, that is a signal to yourself that it's something you need to work on or you would gain benefit from working on. Right? It's a signal. You know, John, I remember as a, as a junior doctor, I remember in Edinburgh being taught about early warning signs, EWS, early warning signs. And I think I was a junior house officer or a senior house officer at the time, first or second year from quali- you know, after qualifying. I remember being taught by a senior that we've got these early warning systems, right? If you do regular OBS, so these are observations, things like heart rate, breathing rate, temperature, do them regularly. And depending on what category they fall into, we can predict who is going to end up needing high dependency or intensive care in a few hours based upon how those observations are going. And the whole idea was by knowing that, by knowing the natural trajectory when someone 
as OB starts to change like this, we can go in and take action and prevent that from happening. And I see a daily practice of solitude as our own early warning system for our own physical and mental and emotional well-being. Like it allows things to come up. And I know this because I, I sort of, I never really was a present to this when it happened. But for years, if my stress load was building, whether that be emotional or work or whatever, I would feel tightness in my upper right back. I would just feel a bit tight, right? But I, I wasn't aware of it. I, I never stopped to actually think about it. But now I'm really aware. So when I have that morning practice of solitude, if I feel that, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Why is that coming on? Okay, is it because I've got too much on with work? Is it that's something unaired with my wife? Do I need to have a chat with her? You know, what is it that's going on in my life? Do I need to make sure that I reduce how much work I've got over the next few days to make sure I've got time to recuperate? What is it I need? And it sounds so simple when I say that, but I tell you, Johnny, so many people don't have time for that. They think they don't have time for that. And they wonder why they're blowing up with their partner in the evening or why they've still got indigestion. Of course, there can be other reasons, just to be really clear. I'm not saying this applies to everyone, but we don't ask ourselves these questions. What is really going on? We, we need to remember that our stress response impacts every organ system in the body. So have a bit of time to let it come up for you. It's it's so, so important. And I think, you know, you look around, I'm, I'm in London having this conversation with you. I'm down for a couple of days to do interviews for, for, for my new book, which is exciting, right? It's great when you've done a piece of work and then you're excited to go and talk to people. But you look around and it's different now from how it used to be, but it's busy. You go into a coffee shop and what do you see these days? You see people in a line. Imagine 15 years ago, you go into that same coffee shop in that line. What are people doing? You're standing in line, you're looking around, you're daydreaming. You might see a work colleague, you might see a friend. You know, you're sort of doing nothing, a micro moment of nothing that allows your brain to process stuff, that allows creativity, all kinds of things. Now, if you're not doing something like ordering or looking at what pastry you may or may not eat, everyone's head down on their phone, doing the email, catching up quickly, a quick check of Instagram. I get it. I'm not criticizing people. But what I am saying is that there is an impact of that. It means you are constantly feeding information and you're never, you know, you're never allowing yourself to just be. You know, we are human beings, not human doings. We are human beings. And one of the big problems in society, I feel, is that we're so busy trying to do more, get more, be more, that we forgot about the pleasure of, of simply being, just being present to how you're feeling. We don't do it. I didn't do it. Right? I didn't do it. Now I do. And I can really feel the benefit. It's something I talk to my patients about. Do you have any solitude? Okay, how can I help you with that? And uh, what was that phrase? I think it's Blair Pascal, this French philosopher. All humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in silence. And I kind of think he's nailed it. I really do. Yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the podcast being called I Am is also pointing to the potential being in being. The I is being, I am. It's when you add the next part that it becomes doing. And I think the journey we have is that cycle of that through doing, I'm going to arrive at my being. Through my suffering, 
or, or through my, my habits of stressing and what have you, I'm going to arrive at my joy instead of just creating more and more intense cycles of, of stressing. And through my doing and my constant efforts, I'm going to arrive at that peace. And I think the, the, the power of that capacity to just be is really, really powerful. And I think that being has an effect on the, the energy state at our core. And once the energy changes, everything changes. And I think you mentioned about when you're in a joyful mood and you're, you, know, you just don't need to worry about anything. Out of that energy comes creativity, it comes joy, it comes relationships. But that energy can't seemingly change through doing. I don't want to put absolutes on anything, but I'd say it's incredibly difficult to think your way out of an energy state into another one. As Einstein said, you know, solving a problem with the same mind. So you need to return to the core beyond the doing and rediscover the being. And I think one of the things you've mentioned, we mentioned it before about the, the reactivity is the power within this. And it's so, so powerful because no one knows what anyone else is going through. And I'd be interested just to hear your view on this is, is that no one knows what anyone else is going through or how deeply they're entrenched in their cycles and their compulsions and how the world looks to them and how they feel they need to react in the urgency and the emergency. But when someone transcends a cycle, when someone steps out of a cycle and we look at it in terms of families and people growing up this way, but then being able to do this with their lives, we look at it as inspirational tales because it is, but it doesn't belong just to, you know, we talk about people being growing up this way and then coming to this you know, uh, revelation and then going on to do this. It, it actually every day when you feel that compulsion and you're able to transcend it by returning to the being and do something different, that ability to respond versus the reactivity yeah. on your on your continuum is a movement towards health and well-being. And I think that for me, I'd, I'd be interested to see some of the, the, the people you've met. And, and there's nothing more inspirational than seeing someone do something different because they've gone to the core and they've chosen deep down. That, uh, because who knows the the intensity of, of the message coming the other way, you know, the, the self-talk, the voice in the head that's yeah. so strong of fear and fear-mongering that, that to actually stop there and go, you know what, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm itching, I'm burning with this need and yet I'm going to stop and I'm going to drop my shoulders and I'm going to breathe deep. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's heroic. Yeah. That, that, I mean, there's such a deceptive simplicity, I think, in what you just said. It is yeah, heroic. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems to be, for many, one of the hardest things to do. But actually, when you get it, when you have lived it, when you have practiced it, I would say, because I think it is something you can practice, Right, I think you yeah. can get better with this. Even this concept of happiness, which I think gets misinterpreted a lot, it is a skill that one can get better at. And as you were talking there, Johnny, the thing that came up for me, you mentioned about fear and judgment and you know the divisive nature, I guess, of many people's interactions these days. Or seemingly, it, certainly if you go online, it can look very, very divisive. Although it's really interesting. You know what? I did the London Marathon last year never run a marathon before. It was a challenge. Chris Evans actually, randomly enough. But what was so interesting for me is that I had a real struggle that day. It was, you know, I got injured early on. I had to sort of hobble around most of the course. But one thing I learned on that day more than anything is that we're not as divided 
as it might appear, as the news might say, as Twitter may give you the impression of. First of all, these digital interactions are not the same as human interactions. They're very one-dimensional. They're not the richness of a three-dimensional interaction with a, with a human being sitting uh, across from you. But what I learned on that day, at the end of it, I was in a lot of pain. I was reflecting in my hotel room that night. I thought, all day in this supposedly divided city and country and world, all I saw was strangers helping strangers, people giving support to other people, running past council houses where people have baked food to give to the runners, people at the end struggling and say, come on, you can do it, mate, cheering people on. And I thought, wow, is it really divided? Or actually, when we're left to be humans with other humans, we want to help, we want to lift people up, we don't want to compete, we want to collaborate. And actually, there's research, you know, that supports this, that we say we're all different. And of course, we all are different. We have different ethics, different beliefs, different backgrounds, different ideas about the world. But the research shows that we feel as if we're being our true, authentic selves when we're being kind, when we're being compassionate, when we're caring for others, when we feel calm, when we're being enthusiastic, when we're in the present moment and calm, that's when we feel we're being our authentic self. So that actually is, for all of us, a return home. That's who we were as children, playing barefoot on the grass with our siblings or by ourselves. We were locked in the moment. We weren't stressing about the future. We weren't fretting over the past. We were present you know, we were right there in the moment. So we've all got that capability within us. It was there. The question is, for me, at what point are you going to turn the ship around and, you know, restart that journey back home? Because it is there inside. That happiness is there inside of us. And, you know, in terms of something that I'd love to share with you, Johnny, I'd love your perspective on this. This one phrase has absolutely transformed my life over the past few years. That is no exaggeration. And it's this. If I were you, I'd be behaving in exactly the same way. And again, I think there's a real deceptive simplicity to that. It basically is this understanding that if I was the other person, if I had their childhood, if I had their parents, if I had their bullying at school if I had any trauma that they'd had, if I'd had the boss that they had had, I would be acting and thinking exactly the same way as them. And if we think we wouldn't, I would humbly suggest or invite people to consider, could that be your ego talking? That, oh no, if I were them, there's no way I'd be doing that. No way. And I and I really feel that that will help us be more present because you could say, as you know, be present and then all the good benefits are going are gonna to come on the back of that. And I, and I agree with that. But some people are so locked in a cycle of fear, of judgment, of getting triggered by other people. I think this is such a simple tool to go, just imagine that person, if I were them, I'd be acting in the same way as them. And it changes everything. Your whole body language changes. You have a deep level of compassion. And I personally have found it very, very helpful. Another phrase which might help people is make everyone a hero, right? Whatever situation is going on in life, someone cuts you up on the road, right? Someone sends you an email you don't like. Okay, find a way 
to make everyone a hero. Find the story, choose your happiness story. Don't tell yourself a victim story where you've lost control and you've lost autonomy over your life, when your happiness and your well-being becomes dependent on the actions of other people. Train yourself and you can. Right? I used to tell myself those victimhood stories. Right? I used to do that. I don't anymore, by and large. Do I fall into the trap sometimes? Yeah. But I have the awareness now to go, ah, you're doing that thing again. Okay, what would happen if I chose a different story here, right? Look, you're, you're obviously elite sportsmen. What's really interesting for me is that this study done on a, not a rugby game, on a football game, they spoke to two groups of people, two separate groups of fans. Same incident happened, right? Everyone sees the incidents. Depending on which set of fans you spoke to, you have a completely different concept of the reality of what happened, right? Same situation, two sets of reality. So what's the truth? And actually, does the truth even matter? Like, that's where I'm going to in my head, Johnny V says, what is truth anyway? Because take a a conventional kind of marital argument, let's say, or a row with someone. Well, depending on who you are and which side of the table you're sitting on, you will have a completely different view of what just went down. There are two stories, at least two stories. So what does that tell us? It means that there is always another perspective. Can you train yourself to walk around to the other side of the story and choose a happiness story? You know, choose a story that frees you, not one that that, that, that sort of entraps you and enslaves you. And, and I tell you, one of the most life-changing conversations I've had, Johnny, is with On my podcast, I spoke to this incredible lady called Edith Eager. I don't know if you are familiar with Edith or not. When I spoke to her last year, she was 93 years old, right? So when she was 16 years old, she was getting ready that evening to go on a date with her boyfriend. And they got a knock on the door in the house. And essentially, her sister and her parents were put on a train to go to Auschwitz. She didn't know what Auschwitz was. She turns up there. Within a couple of hours, her parents are murdered. Later on, she's having to dance for some of the guards who wanted her to dance. And she said to me, one of the last things my mother said to me was, Edith, nobody can take away what you put inside your mind. Right, so she's dancing there. Her parents have just been murdered. And she said, no, I wasn't dancing there. In my mind... I was dancing in Budapest Opera House. I was on stage. There was an orchestra behind me. There was a full house of people watching. That's where I was dancing. I wasn't dancing there. And she also said to me that when she was in Auschwitz, she wasn't a prisoner. I was free. In my mind, I was free. She she said words to me that I think about probably every day. Rongen, I've been in Auschwitz, but I can tell you the greatest prison you will ever go inside is the one inside your mind right so you can always write a different story about your experience and i for people who are skeptical about that or people who might be questioning that i would again invite people to consider if edith eager in the absolute hell of auschwitz can write a different story take a different perspective as hard as that may have been for her i kind of would imagine that most of us in our own lives can probably write a different story about the things that we're bothered about. You know, that was so powerful for me, Johnny. It really, really has changed me. So every time in life, it's a case of, okay, what's a different perspective here? 
oh, that person who just cut me up on the road. Okay, maybe their their daughter was up with a cough last night. They didn't get much sleep. Maybe they think they're about to lose their job and they're rushing to get there on time. Uh, maybe they just didn't see me. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The tr- it, for your happiness and your well-being... Actually, I'm I'm coming to the conclusion that I don't think the truth actually matters. What matters is the perspective and the slant that you put on it. The concept of truth, and there even being one, is is going to be a limit. And as we've seen in the universe, you know, when you try and find out what everything's made of, we find there's no limit. And when we try to go to the outer edges of it, we find there's no limit. Why on earth do we think there's some sort of truth that can work in that kind of environment? I think... The power of of who we are, as you've just explained quite beautifully, belongs to what we already have and what's already there if we go looking for it. And I think that state of being and the power of it and it belonging to us is the movement on that continuum. That as we go into understanding that things can happen around us, and I'd speak in a, I'm sure, in a most privileged way, and I, so therefore this is not aimed at anyone, but whatever happens around us and and to us, but what happens inside of us, that in terms of energy and the way we think that has to belong to us and that journey of exploring that and the fact that people like Edith Eager, as you say, are, are able to illustrate what is possible is inspiring enough to just say, well, we're willing to give so much energy to our limits with the way we react and the way we fight everything. What are we willing to give for our potential yeah is it that 10 minute solitude in the morning is it a little bit of that extra awareness to recognizing i'm stressed at the moment what am i going to do next because i think the way you were explaining it about what people are feeling and and you know if i was in your shoes right now i'd be doing the same thing i think just that acceptance that what has been and what is happening now is inevitable (laughs) but what happens next is not. But when we can't accept that what's happening now is inevitable, it starts to look after what's happening next. And what's happening next becomes inevitable. Whereas that choice and that freedom comes with that ability, how impossible it it may seem for, for all of us, but so many at the moment in all the difficult situations to be able to say, yes, this is what is right now. And I fully accept that and I'm able to relax into it which now allows me to decide what do I want for my next moment yeah and I think that conscious power is the answer to to everything yeah I completely agree when when you understand when you deeply understand that that you actually get to choose your response when you deeply get that and again I I always feel I I want to say this and need to say this that I do understand that people go through many challenges and that sometimes things that you would ideally not like do happen. I don't think either one of us is trying to pretend that's not the case, but if something has happened, it has happened. It's now in the past, right? We cannot change what has happened. So therefore, the only thing we have power over or control over or any ability to influence is what story we put onto it. And again, I come back to Edith Eager. If she can put a story in the hell of Auschwitz, then what stories are we holding on to? Why are we getting so triggered by other people's actions? What are we so scared of when someone's got a different opinion to ours? 
or they see the world differently from the way we see it. Right? What are we so scared of? And then go inside, ask yourself, why are you scared? You know, it's okay. Awareness is the first step to any change. Right? You cannot make long-term change without awareness. You can make short-term change without awareness. You can go on a diet for two weeks. You can quit booze for two weeks. You can go on a, a workout plan for 30 days. Sure. But you want the long-term transformation. You need awareness. It's the first step. So I, I would just literally invite people to try it. Just try it. For seven days, take one incident in your life each day and try and put a different spin on it. Just see how it feels. How does that sit with you? If you don't like it, okay, fine. <laughs> you know, go 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 ahead as you wish to. But I really, I, for me, I've got to say it's been life-changing. Like that life-changing is thrown around a lot. It genuinely has because it helps you see the compassion. It helps you be compassionate in every interaction. And compassion is the key. If you're struggling to get to the state of being, start with compassion. That's who we are, right? If you can learn to judge others less. This is another thing I've learned, Johnny, because I think I probably used to be quite judgmental. And I think for the last years I've been trying not to be. And now I just genuinely just don't find myself judging like I've worked on it and I've realized that actually judgment when we want to judge someone else essentially it comes from a place of inadequacy we don't feel good enough in ourselves so we like to judge that other person because then we can lower them and then as a result we get to elevate ourselves it's a temporary short-lived fix like a sugar fix right it doesn't help you long term in the moment you might feel good so if you're someone who's judging people a lot, again, choose a different story, you know, and you, you will find that by leading with compassion, everything else becomes so much easier. Yeah, I think that compassion and that gratitude for what you do have rather than what you don't, I think almost for me changes that energy. And that energy state completely redefines your past. When you're joyful, all your struggles become the cause of your joy. When you're in a down energy state all your struggles become the cause of your down it's your energy state completely redefines your past and your future and so for me the the exploration is what can i do with my own energy state how do i affect me how do i explore the 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 limitless nature of who i am so i can do that and yeah with everything we've spoken about your your new book happy mind happy life i think if any of this sort of stuff's in there, then then it's it's going to be, it's it's huge. So I, I also just to to sort of finish off as a as a final one, I'd love to hear how do you tie everything in? And again, I made you sort of sum up your twenty odd years in medicine in, in a short answer. I'm asking for even something even even more challenging here. But in terms of what's going to be a life well lived for you, what does fully living this moment mean, and how does that tie in? Yeah, you know, with with what we've been speaking about for you a life well lived for me the way i see the world right here right now as we're having this conversation is about presence it's about me being able to be present in whatever i'm doing if i'm at work can i be fully present can i really experience what's happening in my work in that moment but at the same time can I also be fully present with my wife and my kids when I'm at the dinner table and not be thinking about work? Yeah, I think it's presence, right? That's what it's all about. When we're in that moment, 
high performance, that's a life well lived, that's happiness, that's whatever you want when you're in that present moment. Am I there the whole time? No. <laughs> am I there a lot more than I used to be? Yes. Is it something I keep, I was going to say striving for? Even that word strive, like I, I start to question, like, no, it's about letting go, as you said, Johnny. Let go and you yeah. will be there. That's naturally where we are. So that's my kind of quick answer to a life well lived. No, it's brilliant. It could not be better. One of my answers to that would be just all of me in every moment, but that takes some exploring. And I think you mentioned before, when you can create amazing stories that can become part of how you build an immense life of content you know the things you want to happen and arise in your life the relationships you want to build your story can really drive you there but to be present dropping the story of who you think you are has that ability to allow you to remove the story of someone else in front of you so you can get down to the real beauty of what a relationship is what a moment is what an interaction is but to let go of who you are and where you've come from and let go of these ideas of what everything else is, what it means, and you're left with presence. And you're left with that oneness, as you said, that when does the heart and the lungs, why are they so separate? Why are we not able to see things systemically and see ourselves as being a beautiful, inclusive, interwoven part of everything? And I think the way you've answered it for me is, is as you're answering it and you said it's about presence, and it's about, that's high performance. I'm kind of like, all right, I think <laughs> you could do my podcast for me as well. Like I said, all your work, it's so inspiring and it's so powerful to hear coming from what must be a, a, you know, a challenging environment where some of the energy is going in a different direction. And, and yeah. of course, you must be challenged all the time about you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it. But you know, it's, it's a powerful, powerful message of inspiration. First of all, I've just really enjoyed talking with you about stuff like this what i'm truly passionate about i think this is kind of what the world needs right it needs more feeling more being more compassion i think this stuff is so so important and you know just as a final thought i would just say one thing that i hold true to me that i think it might be helpful for people is it'd you know, be curious in every interaction just be curious whether it's about other people and making them a hero or writing a different story, or whether it's with yourself, be curious. Have this sort of compassionate curiosity about what's going on. Don't get too attached to being right or wrong. If you want to be attached to anything, get attached to learning. Because every day is a school day. Every day is an opportunity. Every interaction you have is an opportunity for you to learn something about yourself. So, yeah, be curious and be kind. Beautiful. Dr. Ronga, thank you so much for your time. It's powerful and it makes a hell of a difference. Thank you. Thanks, Johnny. And just like that, we're at the end of another episode of I Am. I'm so, so grateful to all of you for listening in. I'm enormously keen that this be a two-way conversation. So if you've got any thoughts, questions, ideas, anything that's been inspired by these conversations, anything you just want to get off your chest and get out there, then please send them across in the reviews or just get in touch on social media. I absolutely love holding these types of discussions. I do believe there is no more powerful an opportunity in life than to look at what we can make of our time here on earth individually and collectively. 
There's so much scope and depth in these conversations and all the learnings and lessons I do feel are limitless. If you haven't already, and you want to know a little bit more about why I'm holding this space and talking to these guests, then do head over to the Tuesday episodes. There I'll explain my journey and my history with these people. I'll also use this time to answer any of your questions, so don't hesitate to get in touch, and I'd love it if you'd rate, review, follow, and subscribe to the show. Until next week, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to I Am with me, Johnny Wilkinson. This show is brought to you by Mags Creative. The executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith, and our editor is Kit Melson.